Welcome back. We're one-tenth of the way to a hundred episodes. Religion and politics. In this episode, they both get discussed in a fair amount of detail. I say this right in the introduction, not as a warning to stop listening to this episode, but as an invitation to continue the conversation in the future. Mark was incredibly generous with his time, and as a result, the episode did end up a bit on the longer side, but it also offers a great sampling of topics usually considered taboo, especially in a first conversation. I really appreciated his openness to discuss his past and how it influenced how he is now. When I played back this episode a few weeks after I recorded it, I felt quite comfortable, quite relaxed. I felt I could listen and talk to Mark without fear of judgment. He's a great listener and an excellent conversationalist with well-formed arguments and great insight into the human condition. Going into the conversation, I didn't know what stands Mark would take on questions I was going to ask. In fact, I didn't even know what questions I was going to ask him, but what turned out to be the case was that there was a very large intersection in what he thought to be true and what I believed in. I'm hoping that anyone who listens to this episode and disagrees with any of the shared sentiments would offer to have a conversation with me. It's perhaps the only way to widen our horizons. We can do it by trying to see things through a different perspective, even if the disagreement persists after the fact. For now, say hello to Mark. Hey, Mr. Mark, how are you? How are you, sir? Not too bad. I realized after you asked me if I had headphones, I felt felt like I had real first world problems. I couldn't find my AirPods <laughs> that I've never used before. Well, they look quite fashionable. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. We're, we're sort of kindred spirits in this. We both have a beard going. And from certain angles, you can't even see the AirPods. I was testing them out with my wife. And she couldn't see them at first until I turned my head to the side. They were hidden behind the gray beard, I suppose. So. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad problem to have. Uh, How does your wife I feel re- about the beard? She hates it. How do you feel about the beard? I'm uh, apathetic. I really, I don't care. I think it's more just a convenience or laziness. I've always hated shaving. So Okay, so we feel about the same. There's a, a level to at which my significant other says that she likes it. And then once it goes past that, or it hasn't gotten to that stage yet, she says, it's like rubbing my cheek with sandpaper. And yeah, my, my wife has used that same analogy. (laughs) So yeah, I I get it. She says, I'm not going to kiss you till you shave, et cetera. Um, And then eventually I do. That's usually what gets me. Yeah. yeah, Usually the the withholding of affection gets us to do things that our significant others want us to do. Right. I I agree. I I think it's an unfair power. And if I'm ever the leader of the world, that's going to be one of the things that I outlaw. You cannot withhold affection for desire of shaving uh, or for want of shaving. I like that. I like that. 
All right. Well, thank you for uh, well agreeing to do this. Uh, I feel like I'm making my way through the entire speech communication and SLC department. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if it's just that those are the people that like to talk and as a result don't mind doing something like this. Uh, and other folks are perhaps more reserved or I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on why it might just be that you know, I, I do. As I as I lose one of my, my AirPods, <laughs> I actually are... I, I do I do think that that's probably part of it. I do think that um, we are just, we just tend to be more uh, to, to be chatty, mm -hmm. to be more interested in sharing what's uh, what's on our minds, and and we're used to it. You know, we're used to uh, speaking. We speak a lot. We go into classrooms and give orientations. I know that you've had some SLC folks in your classes as well to go in and, and speak. So I think we're used to it. And um, we're not all extroverts, though. I mean, I, I happen to be a little more extroverted, I think, than some of my colleagues, but we're not all uh, extroverts, but we're used to it. So. Sure. And I, I always say that the SLCs, um, I, you know, I heard some plugs. I did get a chance to listen, I think, to almost all the other podcasts while I was working this week. Any, and, any thoughts, um, uh, suggestions on how I could improve or do a better job? No, I loved it. I actually love the uh, the sort of colloquial nature of it. I love the fact that you're it's just a conversation. Um, you know, people don't seem to feel nervous when they're speaking with you, and you're clearly you know that old adage about be yourself is a cliche, but but that's it. I think you're being yourself, and I think you're getting people you uh, you talk to to be themselves as well. Um, so no, I don't really have any suggestions. Just keep keep doing you. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. All right, then I, I guess I'll start with my questions or question rather. Tell me about yourself. I, I know next to nothing about you other than where you work and what you do. So yeah. you're welcome to skip those details, but I know nothing about you. I, I can't think of, you know, oh, tell me about this because I want to know more. Uh, your counterpart, Kim, I knew that she got married in Ireland. So I had a touch point and I said, you know, either go backwards from it or right. lead up to it. So with you, you can start wherever you like and take it away. Floor is yours. Sure. Um, kind of start. I was uh, born and raised in New York, Brooklyn, New York, and moved here uh, just before my 15th birthday. And I've lived in Florida ever since. And uh, there are things that I like about Florida, but many more that I do not. And I think my wife and I are going to sort of buck the trend of people moving to Florida. Then when they retire, we want to move away from Florida I do, however, one of the things I love about living here, and it's just happenstance, I suppose, is I love my job. Mm -hmm. I love my job and I love our students and I would do anything to, uh, to help promote the, the, uh, the Student Learning Center and also anything to help our students either in the, the SLC or in the classroom. Um, my background in terms of education, I have a bachelor's degree in English literature. I have a master's degree in communication, I actually started working on a master's in English and I transferred to communication to study uh, film among other things. And I have been working at the college now for about 12 years uh, in a number of capacities, teaching. This is why I didn't want to wear the, uh, the AirPods because uh, <laughs> I, I, know, no, I know this is a very, uh, this is an auditory medium, but they're, they're falling out of my misshapen uh, ear holes right now. Um, so a number of different things at the college. I've been in the classroom for about 12 years, teaching primarily our developmental classes and our EAP, our second language classes, which is my, my, uh, my, my real passion, honestly. I love that. And I've worked my way up in the SLC from a tutor 
to a part-time learning specialist to the the uh, basically the coordinator for all of the writing and now at least temporarily reading and second language activities as well on the Boca campus. So I think that's sort of the thumbnail sketch of who I am. And if I left anything out or you have any questions, I, I, I'm sure I'll come up with something. Fondest childhood memory. My fondest childhood memory. Wow. Um, it's, I swear I didn't plan this, but I actually, I was cleaning out a drawer earlier today and I found some photo albums and uh, dating back to the, I want to say late seventies, maybe early eighties, uh, lots of pictures in Disney World. And it, this is maybe more of like an amalgamated type memory. I don't know that it's one specific memory, mm -hmm. but traveling to Florida with my mom, my dad, and then later my younger sister to Disney World. Um, and a lot of great memories about that. To this day, I still, I'm, I'm a real sucker. As much as I recognize all the sort of corporate aspects of it, <laughs> all the things that I shouldn't like, right? As a self-professed socialist, which I, I, I will tell anyone, my feelings when it comes to politics, but there's something very, you know, to use their term magical about going back. And I think a lot of my best memories as a kid were uh, related to Florida and Disney World, that sort of thing. That, that seems to be a common thread here because I, I spoke with Nat and uh, I forget if he said he was born and raised here, but he remember he mentioned uh, that Disney provided some of his wonderful memories of childhood Helena mentioned the same thing that uh, driving from somewhere in upstate New York, Westchester, I think she mentioned, uh, yeah, driving down sure. from Westchester to Florida every summer of the sort. And going to Disney was one of those things. And uh, well, now you and I can't remember if Kim said something similar. She's a big Disney fan. She may be a bigger Disney fan than, than I am. Oh. I, I think for me, it was the, the disparity between where I lived and what Disney was um, sort of like I grew up in a very crowded city in an apartment building that was by, you know, the standards of I'm very lucky right now to have a nice big house it was pretty small with a lot of people crammed into it. And um, there was no magic there. So it, it was really a very different kind of place for me to visit, especially as, as, as a child. I have a lot of good memories about that. Sure. Uh, anything that sticks out that perhaps you wish you hadn't gone through? Um, so I guess the other end of the spectrum, was there anything in your formative years that you think I'll change the question slightly. Is there anything that perhaps would be less than desirable, but you think it helped you become the person you are now? Sure. Yeah. And I'll just, I, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I'll, I'll, I have no problem sharing anything about me. I've struggled with, anxiety and depression my entire life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the first serious bout I had of anxiety, I was probably uh, about 13 or 14. Didn't know what it was, wow. couldn't put a name on it. And um, it was tough. It was tough until I knew what it was and how to deal with it and came up with good coping skills for it. So on the one hand, I wish I hadn't gone through some of the things I did as a kid. It was hard to be in a classroom sometimes. It was really difficult to not want to just get up and bolt for the door. I felt very closed in, very anxious. But on the other hand, um, I feel like I am who I am today in large part be because of that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of in the rear view mirror, but it's never that far behind me. Sure. So, so to, to press on, not to press, but to, I guess, ask another question related to that. How would it be easier if I sat on a couch when you asked it? No, 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 no. I, I, that would require me <laughs> to have a, 
uh, what is it, a pipe with you know smoke coming out right. of it or something of the right, sort. Right, right. But what was it that you did in particular? Were there any specifics that you can remember that helped you deal with those feelings? Yeah, you know, was, it, was it people? Was it an environment? Was it something that you read online? Well, maybe not online, but was it, you know, what yeah, well, was it that helped you get through that time? Because I'm sure other people would benefit to hear that. Well, it's funny because listening to the other, I think it was like four or five podcasts at the time we we're recording this. Um, I, you have about four or five that are out there. And it's something I think you said, I believe it was you, not one of your guests. And it was something about you were interviewing, maybe it was Kim, and you were interviewing her and kind of talking her through not being nervous, et cetera. And you said that that's something that's always been difficult for you. And mm-hmm. you were told, I can't, I can't remember, I apologize, who said it to you, but you play the and then what experiment in your head. Right? That was my like, significant other, yes. Okay. Or so that she, is my significant really, other, not even was, but is. I remember you mentioning her. So, so hang on to her because she's, she's clearly you know, pretty smart. <laughs> um, it's so I, I did I did that and I know it seems really basic but I think that was the breakthrough for me. So I mentioned like wanting when I was in high school to get up and bolt for the door because I was anxious I felt closed in claustrophobic and once I started playing that game and then what you know what's what's going to happen what's at the end of that whole scenario that you play mm-hmm. out in your head and it's usually not that big of a deal and I think I've kind of internalized it at this point. I don't think I have to really walk through the steps. I just know that whatever's at the end is probably not that bad. So just see it through. And that helped. It helped more than medication ever helped. I I haven't been on any kind of medication for years. Um, That really helped. Exercise has always really helped. Just being fit and getting your body working helps your brain to work better. And I know there's a lot of science to back that up. Um, Finding things that I'm passionate about and sort of really diving headfirst into those things. Those, those, those are all just, again, kind of broadly, those are all things that have helped along the way. That's a, that's a very, very, very strong realization to have. Uh, even, I mean, regardless of what age you are at, uh, not to say that I wish that I could have come to that realization myself, but the end what or end then experiment, if we're able to internalize that yourself, that, that's, that deserves some major, major kudos. And I'm not sure... Other people would be able, I certainly haven't been able to do it myself. So was it just something that was inherent in you or was it something that, you know, an external influence, not to cheapen your ability to do this, no. but was it something that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's a great, that's a great question. And to be honest with you, I, I don't, I don't know why I was able to do that mm-hmm. other than I've always been very, very introspective. And, um, I've always, um, tried sometimes to almost like step outside of myself to look at myself and say, what are you doing? You know, um, you sort of like when you're making a bad decision and you recognize that you're making a bad decision, um, you may do it anyway. And I've made a lot of them, but, you know, I feel like I've always had that kind of more like, like innate, innate ability to Mm -hmm. step outside of myself. And, and maybe that's why I've been able to sort of rationalize the, the the behavior and play that and then what game i don't know i don't know the answer to that i wish i did again i, I i'm thinking that that's a that's a huge 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 pickup for someone at any age to be able to yeah. rationalize what they're feeling and then say well if i bolt for the door then what happens and if i don't bolt for the door then what happens to, to be able to 
process that while you're going through, you know, whatever you're going through at 13, right. 14, 15, or at any age, really. And it wasn't, it wasn't in an epiphany. It wasn't a, all of a sudden, sure. you know, recognizing that, Hey, I can do this and I'll be fine for the rest of my life. I think it, it, it built up over time, the ability to do that. You know, I lost a lot along the way in mm-hmm. terms of that journey. And it's something I've talked to people about, um, friends, but you know, if anyone can benefit from hearing that if things do get better when you're depressed or you're suicidal or you're anxious, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. Um, not, not the bad light, the good light, there's a good light at the end of the tunnel. And, um, you know, you should keep, keep your eyes on that. It took me years. It took me years to get, you know, I, I went 20 years without getting on an airplane because of my anxiety. Wow. And yeah. And I missed out on so much cause I do like visiting other places and seeing other people and cultures, et cetera. So it took me a long time to get there. I lost jobs along the way. I lost relationships along the way. This is going down a very dark road. Um, not, not what I feel expected, free to detour as whenever you like. No, I, there's a lot, there's a line. I'm a huge movie buff. I think I mentioned I studied film in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in college and I'm just a huge movie fan and collector, you know? Um, so there's a line and I'm, I may butcher it, but there's a line from one of my favorite dark ish comedies starring Bill Murray called uh, quick change. I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it. I it's about a bank heist. It's a silly kind of bank heist movie. But Bill Murray, one of my favorite actors, uh, because I sort of identify with him. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of pain behind the the comedy. And so some people just love him. I think that's part of the reason why. He has this line in the movie. He's, he's dressed up as a clown when he robs this bank. But it's so inconsistent with his behavior. He's clearly got some real demons that he's, you know, dealing with and contemplating. And um, someone asks him, what kind of clown are you? And he says, I'm the crying on the inside kind of clown. And I... I think that line from the time that I saw that movie had to be over 10 years ago has always stuck with me because I'm always the first person to make a joke, but I think there's rooted, you know, in, in that humor, there's, um, there's, there's some real pain that I, that I struggle with that I deal with. And a lot of it is because of the depression, the anxiety, all that other stuff. Have you heard of, or, or heard the podcast? Oh, I don't want to mess this name up. I think it's called the hilarious world of depression. No, I'm going to write that down. If you haven't, it, it's a wonderful listen. Um, I'm trying to, let's see if I can find it. Uh, are you a fan of NPR? Oh my God. I'm a huge, Terry Gross is my favorite interviewer in the entire world. Yes. I'm, I'm a huge fan of NPR. Yes, I am. Is it an NPR podcast? Ah, uh, that, I don't think that it is. Let me see. If I'm I look can... it up. Thank God this is a podcast. I don't know. What do you do with the video? I was going to ask you on the What do you do with the video? Eventually, well, I, I only record it because Zoom does something quite convenient. It actually gives me the ability to split off the audio and video natively. So I don't have to do anything. Uh, after the recording is over, it just puts all the audio in a separate folder. And then I import that audio for you into Audition. I sync the two tracks together put an intro, put an outro, add some music to it. And that's basically it. I, I, I love I the could music, say, by the way. By well, the way. thank very, you. Very polished. And I know you, you know, you've made the comment that you're still trying to find your feet as a podcaster. And A, it took great courage to do it because it's something I've always thought about doing and have never done. You should. Be, it's about as difficult as trying to order food from a menu in a restaurant that you don't speak the language. So you can figure it out. You can figure it out as long as you're patient because there are other people along the way that will help you. 
So if, if you right. go to a restaurant where you don't speak the language or uh, maybe the menu is in French and I, I'm, I'm at a French restaurant and I don't speak any of the words and I don't know the language, but as long as I'm not being rude, I've found that uh, the waitstaff, the maitre d' or the chef will come out and say, you know, they'll do a chicken dance and say that's a chicken sure. or, you know, yeah. that's, that's beef, moo or whatever. They, they would get the point across and then, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing going on and, you know, mushroom is always weird. Uh, the way mushroom, and this again is not going to translate, is the person did this, they, they held up their hand and- It looks like, like a mushroom. But then they did that. Yeah. And initially I said, I have no idea what you're doing. And then he yeah. did, I was like, mushroom. <laughs> I don't know why this action of removing one hand on top of the other implies mushroom in my head. But he didn't sense. know English. I didn't know French, but we got the point across to each other. It makes sense. It makes total sense. See, when you were doing that, I was thinking of Super Mario Brothers, um, but but same for the same reason. It's the same it's, argument. It's a mushroom uh, gesture. But yeah, so it's, it's, there are, and depending on how far deep down the rabbit hole you want to go with the technical aspect of it, mm-hmm. you know, you, you start reading about condenser microphones and dynamic microphones, and then you need phantom power for a dynamic microphone because the gain level is too low. And that solving that equation or balancing that equation speaks to the nerd inside of me. Sure. And then it was also a challenge in terms of, I enjoy the technical aspect of it. But I also want to get better at just conversing with people. That's something that I think that I can be significantly better at. And I, I thought, who better to do it with uh, than my colleagues? These are people that I want to get to know better. And uh, the pandemic, you know, one of the silver linings has been that it's allowed me this platform or this opportunity to say, hey, you're home. And if you want to hang out with me for an hour, Come on yes. Zoom and we'll, we'll have a conversation about the hilarious world of depression or whatever podcast you want to talk about. Well, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, I, I asked you before we did this if there was anything I should prepare. And you just you said, no, not really. Just do you have a microphone? That was essentially the gist of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you just prepared technically to do it? And um, I like that. I like I like just headed down the road and you see where it takes you. And um, I know when I teach, I've been teaching at the college now for about 12, 12 plus years along for a while. And for every class that I have taught for every day, for every section and every session I have ever taught, I have written or typed up a a detailed agenda for everything. Mm -hmm. And I place that agenda on the the podium or on the desk, wherever I happen to be and proceed to ignore everything on the list. But I think it's the act of preparing makes me feel it's cathartic. It makes me feel better. Sure. And then when I have that list, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the Picasso quote about learning the rules so you can break them. You learn Mm -hmm. the rules like a pro so you can break them as an artist. I don't know that I can't picture him saying the word pro, but aside from that, um, that concept, right. That you, you know how to do it. And then you sort of deviate from, from that. I like that with the conversations. That's actually what I'm enjoying most. So kudos to you for that because the conversation seemed very natural and not forced. And that I'm a huge podcast nerd. I love podcasts. And even some of the best podcasters don't always seem natural. It seems mm-hmm. scripted. But the best ones, I mentioned Terry Gross, yep. an interviewer. Um, I would hang out with Terry Gross, you know, anytime. I'm just not, I'm not interesting or important enough to do it. But, you know, like they always seem like very organic, natural conversations. And you have a 
a real knack for that. I've really enjoyed listening. Thank um, you. While I'm working or playing video games or whatever I'm doing. So John, I don't know where that started, but uh, well, I, I was looking and I found the, the podcast in my podcast app. It's by, uh, John Mo. Wait. Yes. He he's apparently an author and a comedian and the first episode i think he started with was with peter sagel uh the host okay. of the fame host of sure uh, wait wait don't tell me yeah npr there you go then. i did not know any of those details about peter sagel about how i don't want to give the, the episode away but these are published details about his life so but i i just never knew any of those things about him about how he essentially walked into the theater every weekend, put on a fantastic show for the audience, went home, and was dealing with bouts of severe depression because he was his marriage was falling apart and he was not having a good time with it. Yeah, not can, that anyone does, but right. uh, he was having an especially difficult time with it. But somehow he was able to compartmentalize it. And initially I had to hear it. I had to listen to that episode uh, or that conversation a few times over. The first time I heard it, I was just fangirling or fanboying over Ooh, Peter Sagal. Yeah, he's talking right, the, outside the, yeah. outside the, the, the context of wait, wait. The second time I heard it, I realized, oh, crap, he's depressed or he was depressed sure. and he was talking yeah. about this. The third time around, you know, the third layer that you that you uncurl from the onion uh, or you peel away from the onion was this guy had the wherewithal to compartmentalize things to such an extent that I don't even think is possible. And I don't know how people do that. It's, I mean, it's possible. You know, I think and compartmentalize is the, is the perfect um, is the perfect verb. It's the perfect word for it, because you hear about like functional uh alcoholics mm -hmm. you know like people are familiar with that concept people can go to work and be even great at their job but sure. but they have a major drug or drinking problem whatever and it's really not all that different from dealing with uh mental illness anxiety and depression uh, you know i think i've been a functional depressive for for the last 20 years of my life mm -hmm. where i've been able to not only do my job but to you know, I feel like to do my job really well to build a good reputation at the college and amongst my colleagues and my students. Uh, but then, like you said, sometimes go home and you just want to curl up into the fetal position. And, and, you know, but I have a sense of humor about it. And I think that's also helped, you know, and I'm also open about it. Um, I've been in therapy for since I was a teenager. So, you know, I'm 40, almost 47 years old now. So I've been in therapy much longer than I haven't been in therapy in my life. And, um, you learn to compartmentalize, you function in spite of it. And honestly, sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there about some of our greatest, um, and I'm not, by, I'm not even an artist or particularly creative person, but some of our greatest thinkers or greatest creative minds struggle with mental illness and that they're, that it may not be in spite of, but to some extent because of that. That's where I, I was trying to figure out how to ask that question, but the, the great comedians, whether stand up or, or in film or theater, that I can think of Jim Belushi, John Belushi, um, Martin Short. Farley. I have a lot of them. You have Chris Farley, a lot of them. Chris Farley. I was thinking, yeah. trying to think of Chris Farley. Uh, they, they all seem to be John Stewart, Peter Sagal. Richard Pryor. Richard I'll give you a Pryor. list. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, do you think that there's a link to, 
And I asked this question to someone else whose episode hasn't been released yet. So I, I, I don't yeah. want to give up names, but do you find in your opinion that there's a prerequisite almost, uh, to be that good or to be that funny that unless you've recognized some part that's dark or some part that's painful, you can't really go to the other end of the spectrum. Meaning if so. you've only ever been in the middle, you, you, you've never experienced, you know, the, the, the darkness of, of uh, adolescence or the darkness sure. of the teenage years or whatever the case might be. Maybe life wasn't terribly difficult for you, but, internally there was there were things happening that you couldn't explain that unless you go through that there's no way to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and become a comic genius or become a great a great artist or a great painter or something of the sort yeah i like the way you're thinking that through i, I mean yes i thought about that before and i do think that you know i i think it was freud and uh i'll just sort of like to paraphrase his idea that at, at the, the, the genesis or the, at the, you know, the genesis of every joke is some kind of pain, some kind of, you know, difficult situation. Um, we laugh at things, uh, again, the whole concept of catharsis, we laugh at things because it feels better to laugh about things that aren't that funny. We make jokes about politics. We make jokes about life and death, uh, disease, et cetera. Um, and I think all that, by the way, should be on the table, but I think those things come from that, that, humor that comes from from pain so yes i think so i think our best comedians and many of our best artists um i think more great art comes from pain than than, than from happy childhoods sure and happy lives and and, and you know i it kind of sucks because we end up losing a lot of our great artists uh due to that you know um just so many people who end up dying young committing suicide etc the list you know endless but yeah i think so i think there is connection between suffering and, and comedy. Comedy's great. And comedy's a great example. You know, I used it. That was that was really smart because that's the you know the Bill Murray quote from the movie earlier. That's it. It's you know that humor comes from um bad things in your life sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh a question that's slightly out of context, but I guess to drill down further into something you said. Do you think that there are things that one should not joke about or one should not be comedic about? No. No, I don't. I mean, you're going to offend somebody with almost anything you say, but I think once we start taking things off the table, and I'll give you, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this podcast, and I'm known for having no filter. So okay. my, my goal today, by the way, Honor, was to not curse on your show. I haven't heard any. <laughs> okay, so, so I, like, I, will, I will say this. When I upload stuff to Anchor, which is the website that I use for, you know, I upload the, the episode to Anchor and then from Anchor, it basically gets broadcasted to all the other podcasting apps slash websites. Right. And there, you know, I think the two tags or the, the two things are clean versus explicit. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to push you into the explicit tag. Well, you can. I just found out that there are there's a way where I can take your first utterance of a word that would be considered explicit, and sure. then Audition will find the same utterance elsewhere, and it, I can bleep it out. So individually, yeah. I don't have to go ahead and do that. So by all means, I, if you need to, or if you find, I always want to try it to see if it works. But I, but, but no, I'm not. <laughs> Like that would be the, that would be the motivation for doing it. It's just to go see ahead. If it works. I'll have something to do. I'll have something to my do favorite, next. You want Sunday. me to do it? 
Absolutely. If my you find my... that your your point would come across better okay. as a result of a, of use of explicit language, please use it yeah. because I find in some cases it's uh, perhaps not necessary and people use those words because their vocabulary is lacking. I don't think that that's the case in your position. So oh. if you find that it's that it, it puts the right garnish on your sure. point, please go yeah. ahead. You know when I teach uh, I I teach parts of speech. Many of my students are learning the language from a variety of backgrounds. I've been, like I said, I've been teaching second language students for, for well over 10 years now. And when I talk about parts of speech with some of my, my lower level students, we, um, we talk about interjections and, you know, we talk about sort of expressions of emotion. And I say almost every curse word, you know, if you want to think about what an interjection is, what do you say when you bang your foot into something? And it's usually the F bomb or the mm -hmm. S bomb or some derivation of one of those words, depending on the way you were brought up. Um, so no, I think they're, they're, I think they're powerful words sometimes, but having said that, I, I promised myself I would try not to, uh, <laughs> to curse. I have no filter, but I forget what I was going to lose my filter over. I'm sorry. I lost the questions. I was thinking. About the, I think what I asked was if there were things that we should not joke about. Oh, and I said no. Yes. Yeah. I, and I, don't, I don't know I, where I don't you think... were going to take that. So I think what I was going to say, if I remember, um, chalk this up to age, that growing up, I mean, I was raised Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, that's my heritage. I'm not a believer. I will tell you I'm an atheist and, and I'm getting to the whole reasons why I feel the way that I feel, but that's kind of beside the point. But growing up, um, I would hear jokes about Jewish people, even jokes about the Holocaust, which is considered taboo. You don't, you know, it's one thing if I say it, you know, like I guess I'm allowed to in certain ways say it. Um, I don't know that I should, but no, I don't, I don't think we should take anything off the table when it comes to humor. Um, I think it's a good conversation starter, and I think you have to always question the motive behind the joke. Is someone making the joke to be mean-spirited? Is someone making the joke to make you laugh, to make you think? Uh, Lenny Bruce was a great example. I don't know how mm -hmm. familiar you are with, with, you know, with his work, but you know he was pushing buttons intentionally 50, what, 50 plus years ago, you know, trying to say things that some people might not consider funny. And he kind of, he kind of lost his mind in the end. So he's probably not the best example to, to, to bring up that, but you know, I mentioned Richard Pryor and, and some of these really brilliant cutting edge comedians, there's nothing off the table. Bill Hicks is another one. Mm -hmm. There's nothing off the table for, for, for these guys. There's very little that they take off the table. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think if it comes from the right place, it can be a great motivator and a great way to, really delve into a subject you know so i say no but that's that's my opinion about it. sure no i i i enjoy dave Chappelle a lot and he's uh, another Chappelle's one of those I missed him. Yeah. yeah he's another one of those people that uh recently he was awarded i think it was a mark twain award or mark twain prize yeah. um and he went on and he was as irreverent as usual or as yeah. always, and he started smoking on stage, and he said, what are they going to do, kick me out because I'm, I'm smoking on stage on my night? They can do Dave nothing. Chappelle. No one's kicking him out. Yes. So there were jokes that he made, and sometimes there were jokes, sometimes there was social commentary, which I, I love when he goes into those uh, monologues where it, it's very hard to distinguish between when the punchline is going to appear or arrive and it never does, and it's just a scathing review of, or 
Yeah, a scathing review of what's going on in the socio-political, economic climate uh, yeah. currently. Yeah, and if you start to tell someone like that that you know these are the these are verboten, you can't bring these things up in your act. You don't have Dave Chappelle, you don't have Richard Pryor, you mm-hmm. don't have Lenny Bruce, you don't have those people. So again, my answer is no, um, but I know that some people will certainly disagree with that. The the question that I'm leading up to. And again, this is apropos of nothing, but because we started talking about freedom of speech in some ways uh, and comedians, do you think, or I'll set it up as follows. There was a, uh, an Indian comedian who was hired to give, to do a set for an hour at Columbia University. Um, he, I think, was a writer for SNL, but I'm not sure if I remember that detail correctly. But he, he opened for Aziz Ansari, and so he's... Mm-hmm semi-well-known. He's not Chappelle well-known, but he's semi-well-known. He made a joke that basically got him kicked off stage and people, the, the organizer said, you need to leave, that this has offended a lot of people. And the audience was split down the middle uh, to where some members of the audience felt the need to apologize profusely for what had happened. And then other members of the, the audience said that, yeah, you're joking about it, but that's not cool, that you, you crossed a line into a place where you're not entitled to go. And that, I guess, set off the person. And he's like, I'm Indian. What, what are you talking about entitlement? So right. that, that's kind of where that ended. But I wonder if the same thing happens if Dave Chappelle does it. And I think that the answer is no. I think Dave Chappelle... Because of his vir- stature, you mean? Is yes. That what you're saying? Yeah. I don't think that Chappelle, by virtue of having the last name gets kicked out of an of an arena or gets kicked off of a stage at Columbia University or whatever the case might be because he says something controversial. Probably not. I think you're prob- probably right. Um, and now, having said that, I just, I should, I should say, having said that I don't think anything should be off the table doesn't mean that I'm going, I'm going to be the one to put it on the table. Like I don't, sure. you know, I feel that way and I would support anyone's right to, to make an off color blue joke, but doesn't mean I'm going to make that joke. I have I, I have standards. I don't know that mm-hmm. other people need to have them. But you're right. I think you're right. And I think that's a good point um, that Chappelle probably, I don't know the joke. I want to look into it. But my guess is he probably could say almost anything and yeah. get away with it. Like I'm trying to think of, be easier to think about the things he couldn't say and get away with. Um, I mean, it'd be easier to think about like, yeah, what couldn't he say? And I, that would be a tiny, tiny percentage of things i think he could say almost anything i think so as well i i can't think of anything i'm thinking i would argue that because of how well spoken and articulate he is sure he could make an off-color joke but present it in a manner that you know, speaks the racism or speaks the sexism or speaks the homophobia or he, yeah. he might be able to get across something that some people would consider in poor taste, but attached to that, you know, attached to that email is this very nuanced look at what's really going on in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the, that's the brilliance of his humor, right? That's yes. it. That even when you get angry at him, you realize certain things about, well, why am I, why am I angry? What am I angry about? And he's a provocateur and he does a great job with, with, with that. I love Chappelle. I think he's brilliant. He was brilliant on his TV show. He's brilliant with the standup. He's still brilliant, even though he doesn't do it quite as much or, you know, as often as he used to, but, um, 
that's it, is that there is real social commentary and real thought, genius, I think, behind the, the jokes, gets you thinking. So. All right, switching gears to some of the questions that uh, the individual this morning asked. Uh, I'll dive right in. If you could cook any dish perfectly every single time, what would it be? Ooh, I could cook any dish perfectly. Um, so I don't want to be that person who just repeats the question to give my answer. But, but I, I'm thinking. I heard that that's a wonderful technique, I think, from Chris Voss. I was, I was watching an interview with him. He's one of the most famous FBI negotiators uh, for you know hostage situations and bank heights sure. and, and all that stuff. So he said that one of the ways that you can talk down someone in that position is to get them to think that you care about them or care about what they're saying or how they're thinking. Right. And one of the, the most commonly used tricks, I guess, or repeat, tips repeat is back. to repeat the last couple of words of the question. Yeah, they, they know you're listening. Yes. So now I know that. you're listening. I feel very encouraged well, to... don't... Don't, you know, you're right, but don't assume only because that's, that's, I don't think she can hear me. That's, that's a strategy I use with my wife. I just, <laughs> I just repeat a few of the words and you know, the pro the problem is when it's not like a simple yes or no type situation Sure. and she usually catches me. Um, Gives no, you a little am, more am, time. It, it does. I'm, I'm just, I'm a terrible person. I, the thing that I would cook perfectly every time, you know what? I, I'm going to slightly change that too. I, I cook pretty well i think i actually do more of the cooking in my house than 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 my wife does um but i've never been good at baking so if i could bake something well i'd be i'd like to be able to bake perfect brownies every time you know or some kind of cake something sweet i've never been good at that i always burn it or the brownies are not chewy enough on the mm -hmm. inside you know like i could never get that perfect crispy on the outside of the brownie chewy on the inside slightly maybe undercooked on the inside texture uh, so I, I don't know. I'm going to say brownies. I'd love to be able to bake something. Well, I've never been able to do it. Fair enough. Okay. Choose one and explain why free air travel for the rest of your life or your dream job. Hmm. And now given what you said earlier about not flying for 20 years, I don't know if that's, I like, I do fly now. Actually. Oh, okay. I do travel. Um, now, if I get to keep the dream job for the rest of my life, I, I would choose the, I mean, I know I'm making up things about a made up thing, but if I get to keep the dream jobs for the rest of my life, I would presumably the that's job, the case here. Then I would keep it because there's, to me, I've worked some really, really crummy jobs and having the job I do now is one of the most outside of my health and my family is number three on my list. Uh, there's nothing else that matters more to me than what I do, doing it well and helping our students. So if I could keep that feeling of satisfaction and knowing I'm making a difference mm -hmm. and just be able to make a living, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed and very fortunate to have a nice house and, 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 and a good life and disposable income, but I'm by no means rich. I would just want enough money from that job to be able to, to pay my bills, be comfortable and, you know, do the things I like to do. Uh, so I would go with the job. If I had to pick one, because of the satisfaction, I think I would get, um, there would be more of it than just the, the travel. You can't be on an airplane traveling all the time or in another country traveling all the time. You need to be able to work to be able to do things as well. So Sure. You yeah. mentioned you had a bunch of crummy jobs. What's the worst job you've ever had? I had some really, 
And by the way, crummy was the word that I, I substituted for my favorite curse word. Um, <laughs> I'm very cognizant of it right now. The worst, I've had some bad ones. You know, I did a lot of, one of my previous jobs, I did a lot of landscaping work. And not that landscaping is a bad job, but it's backbreaking. Mm-hmm. And um, I get a little bit political here. And, you know, feel free if you don't want to leave this part in. But it really bothers me when... Um, there are those among us, and by us, I do not mean you or me, who feel very strongly about immigration, illegal immigration, and about the kinds of jobs that, that people do and, and building border walls and all that other stuff. And that the jobs that so many people do when they are illegal immigrants, it's backbreaking. It is, it is, it is backbreaking toiling kind of work and I've done some of that work and so mm-hmm. I can appreciate it having done it where you get home and you can't even make it to the shower even though you're covered in you know schmutz is the word I'm going to use here you're covered <laughs> in dirt I just want to get one Yiddish word in there for my grandmother you're covered in dirt but you're so tired and so I've had some really bad jobs where um, in terms of just how hard the work was sure I'm happy I got to do them. I was younger. I can't, probably couldn't do them now without having a heart attack or breaking a hip. But, but at the time, I was able to do those things, and it was rough. I didn't get paid a lot. Um, there were some pretty rude people I had to deal with. But some of the landscaping jobs I did in the past were pretty rough. And of course, like most people, I you know um, I grew up working in retail, working in Target, and and you know all kinds of stores in the mall. And I think those jobs are. They're the pits. There's no real satisfaction in doing that. You do it because you want to make your little bit of money so you can hang out with your friends and, you know, put gas in your crappy old piece, you know, piece of crap car that you have. So yeah, things like that. But I've been really lucky for the last um, 15 or so years to be working in academia. Mm-hmm. I think this is my niche. This is the thing that I would, my boss always tells me to stop saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If I were rich, I would do what I do now for free. I can't afford to, Right. But helping students, I literally would do it for free if I didn't need the money. So to counterbalance the bad jobs I've had, I have one that I really like right now, sure. in spite of everything that's going on in the world. So To take another detour, and you can choose to avoid this one if you like. I, I probably won't. Um, do you think that you, you mentioned earlier that you're a bleeding heart socialist or, or some phrase of the sort? Something like that. Uh, something like that, where that S word was involved. Yeah. Do you mind, or do you do you think that your uh, political viewpoints or your opinions were framed as a result of you having had the landscaping job, or do you think that it was a matter of reading what you did or speaking with the person that you or the I people think, that you have along the way? I think all you, of those things. Yeah. Okay. I think all, I think all those things, I mean, to, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty well-read guy and, 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 you know, I'm not saying socialism is perfect or anything like that, but you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of different things. I don't think it hurts that I've worked some of those jobs that people rail so hard against, you know, uh, I identify with, I have friends who are, had to hide the fact that they were in the country illegally. I've met all kinds of people. Another great benefit of what, what, what we do is just the diversity uh, of people that we get to work with, students, mm-hmm. staff, faculty, et cetera. And um, I tend to think that the people who are most xenophobic, who are most 
racist and bigoted and sexist and all the things that I hate so much in, in life um, are the ones who've had the least amount of exposure to those people in those situations. So I think it's a combination of what I've read, but what I've read doesn't mean anything if I haven't actually lived part of it or been exposed. Growing up in New York City was one of the best experiences uh, that anyone could, that I could ever have mm -hmm. because, you know, you obviously knew you might be different from your, your, your black neighbor or your Puerto Rican neighbor or what, whatever. Um, but it was amazing in that it was, you were surrounded by people who were so different from you and you got to eat dinner at someone's house who was so different from you and you were taken in by someone's family who was so different from you. So I think much of what I feel politically is born of kind of the way I was raised, the way I grew up, the jobs that I did, uh, and also a lot of the things that I've read. So both. So both. Do you think that people or society, at least in the United States, I won't go farther out, uh, would be better off if they had experiences such as yours? Because I, I find that people of means find themselves very, in very insulated and isolated communities, meaning uh, cities of, you know, people of means end up in enclaves or, or communities where other people of means also live. And it's not to say that, you know, people of diverse backgrounds can't be people of means, but there, there's a very stereotypical image that comes to mind when you think of, oh, a wealthy American. There's a very, it's not a diverse image by it's, any means. It's or Mr. By, Monopoly. Yes, it's Mr. Monopoly. I couldn't have said it yeah. better. I was thinking Mr. Peanut, but Mr. Monopoly is better. Well, you could take the, the monocle, you can put him on Mr. Monopoly, and then you have the perfect amalgam of, of yes. the, the person you seem to be describing there. Um, do yeah, you think, think that... Be, do you think that as a result of having had those experiences, uh, you were able to identify, that's the word I was looking for, the phrase I was looking for, that you were able to identify with the trials and tribulations of those that are less fortunate? And do you think that? Maybe, but by the same token, I mean, I, I recognize I have uh, a certain modicum of more than a modicum, I have privilege because sure. of the color of my skin. I mean, I might know that I'm Jewish. I might know that I, you know, have this sort of diverse background in the way I grew up. But to most people who see me, I think they might feel comfortable. There have been many times on the rug when I, I, I've been in a room where people didn't know I was Jewish because they didn't know my last name. Um, and they didn't make assumptions about me. And they would tell me jokes that, you know, about, I mentioned earlier that I don't think anything's off the table. Sure. And I don't. But I think some of the jokes that I heard about Jews or blacks or were with malice. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't think people make those jokes if I can, if I appear to them as if I were Jewish, whatever that might look like. Sure. Um, if I'm black, they probably don't make those jokes in front of me because it's going to be fairly obvious unless you're very light skinned that you are African-American and they're going to not make those jokes. So I recognize the privilege that I have. I do have a certain amount of privilege. Um, and I, you know, I do want to point that out. I think a lot of people get so mad when you use the phrase white privilege, but it's as real as the sun coming up every morning. It is, it is a real thing. And anyone who thinks otherwise is burying their head in the sand over it. But I do think that having said that and having sort of recognized and put that out there that I can probably get away with more because I'm white. Um, I do think that I have a level of sympathy based on what I have actually done in my life. 
And I do wish more people were open to diverse experiences. And rather than um, saying, let's, let's build a wall or let's cut off funding for this group of people, get to know one of them first. So how would you initiate that conversation? Not with, and I, I guess my, my impatience or the, the hubris of youth is going to come forth here. How do you get that idea across to someone? Because initiating a conversation while sounds fancier, I think just does that. It, it, it dies out, it peters out, it doesn't result in change. So how do you, and again, how, how do you get through to the people that might perhaps be closed-minded to even have a conversation with individuals that don't look the same, don't wear the same color uh, clothes or, uh, you know, have different religious backgrounds or beliefs. Sure. How, do, do you have any thoughts on how it's, to influence change there? It's really tough. And I'm, I'm going to let you give you some personal insight. I only is really raw and really fresh in my mind right now. Uh, I tend to be a rabble rouser and I tend to rant and rave. And I, I tend to sometimes be judgmental to be really honest about myself. I think sometimes I want to say, what's wrong with you and shake people. And I think it comes from a good place, but you're never going to win any arguments. You know, I teach, I teach, uh, I teach rhetoric, you know, to some of my students and I'm not practicing good rhetorical skills when, when I'm, when I'm, you know, pigeonholing or being judgmental of people. Um, so just yesterday I was having a conversation with my wife and I said to her, um, I'm just, I'm going to cut everybody out of my life who voted for that piece of crap in the white house. I think those are my exact words. So I'm just, just giving you the words as they came out of my mouth. And sure. you know, I'm not, anyone listening to this is not going to be surprised by this point that I said that. And that's, that's the PG 13 version. And, you know, she said something to me, she's like, well, you know, that means you're going to cut out your, your, your family members and you cut out all these people that you, you love. Mm -hmm. And at the time I'm like, yeah, and I don't really care. And she, and she just looks at me and she, like the look of you're a moron, that kind of look. And you just realize that you're a moron and I, and I did. And so, but my, my point is if I am saying these things and even I am struggling to, to be open-minded, I think it's really hard. I wish I had a good answer. I wish I could have that conversation with someone and, you know, say, Hey, you know, before you, before you say build that wall, you know, tell me about, you know, what you know about people in Mexico. Tell me about Mexican friends that you may or may not have. My guess is they don't have any, but I, I don't know. I think we've become so partisan. We've become so divided in this country. It's really sad. It, it breaks my heart that we can't have these conversations we can't even get to the table, let alone sit there and have the talk. People are not even willing to listen. Social media is, you know, in, in so many ways, making the situation worse. Um, it's exacerbating everything because we, we live in these echo chambers. We only listen to the voices that sound like ours. You know, we only surround ourselves with the people who look like we do. And you know, maybe coming across a little pessimistic, but that's what I'm seeing right now. I don't see people mingling and mixing and listening um we've always had partisanship but i feel like it was always more of a sort of you know cordial we have a disagreement we 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 disagree on these issues now we're disagreeing on what a fact is and that's fright that's where where do you start that conversation with someone who disagrees about what's going on with the coronavirus or about global warming these are not debates. I mean, these are things that are happening and you either embrace them or you don't. So I, 
I'm more ranting and raving now, but as a way to say, I don't know how you have those conversations. I wish I did. Another detour. Uh, We've gotten so lost by this point. I don't know what town we're in or city. I apologize. All of this makes perfect sense in my head, which is all I care about. I I don't know if anyone listening to this is going to be able to follow this, but I I have a very, well, maybe not straight line, but I have a very nice thick line from where we started to where we are currently. And, and I see where this is going. And again, oh, I guess I have to apologize to the people <laughs> that are listening to this. All of my Republican friends have since turned the podcast off. Podcast off. So I, I apologize for, for, for that. But. Well, that's okay. Um, right. A few years, months, weeks ago, I, I know, uh, I think it was Milo Yiannopoulos. Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, he either induced riots at UC Berkeley or, or somewhere yeah. in California at one of the UC system schools. Yeah, yeah. Very liberal uh, school. Yes. Maybe it was UCF. Yeah. Whatever. At one of the institutions, uh, people really didn't want him talking at their yeah. institution. So, uh, you know, riot police was called and it was a whole thing. Something similar happened, I think, with Bill Maher, who's, you know, a, yeah. a provocateur on the other end of the spectrum. So... You, know, you, yeah. you have people on the extreme left and people sure. on the extreme right. Do you, in your opinion, find that those individuals should be given a platform to speak? I do. I actually remember when the Marleyanopolis thing happened, and I can't remember the school either. And I remember having a conversation with one of my right-leaning friends at work. I mean, I've fallen off the left side of the earth, so we really couldn't have less in common politically. But I remember she's very well-spoken, um, lovely friend. And we had a whole conversation about, and I agreed with her and I agreed. I think he should have been given the opportunity to speak. Um, having said that there is a difference between free speech and sh- the equivalent of shouting fire in a, you know, sure. in a movie theater, right? So with that in mind, if it's an honest disagreement, even if it's provocation, even if you're, you know, you, you want to get people a little riled up and thinking, I don't know where that line is, and that's really hard to delineate, but I do I do support. I, I It bothered me that people who politically I probably would identify with were acting like, like schmucks, you know? Mm-hmm. They weren't giving this guy even – I don't know what he was going to say because he never got the chance to say it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think – I have a bigger issue with Bill Maher. That's a whole other story, but I think this other guy who clearly is just being a – you know, trying to stir people up and – but he has a right to speak, too. I mean, I, I, I would have liked to have seen people in that situation behave themselves a little better. Generally, I find that um, if you give people a rope, they're going to they're gonna hang themselves. He didn't have to hang them. He would have done it himself. He would have made a buffoon of himself. You know, that's my opinion that he yeah. would have. But why are you the one wrapping the, the noose around his neck and, and stringing him up? Let him do it himself. Give him, give him the opportunity to speak. So I do, I'm a very firm believer in freedom of speech. And as long as, like I said, you're not shouting fire in a crowd. Yeah. Let the guy speak. Even Bill Maher, who's on my last nerve too. So mm-hmm. let him right. speak. I'll come back to the, the questions that this individual asked. So maybe now I'm losing the line. We're, we're going back to it, it seemingly safer uh, locations, I guess. It takes very little. I'm a bear that requires very little poking, apparently. So, no, I, I wonder if, well, I'll share it. I don't know why I'm censoring myself. Uh, 
This was 2009 or 2010. I was taking a philosophy of religion class and my thesis, it was graduate level course, and my thesis was on the existence of the non-religious God. So the God of, mm. of Plato, Plato, Platonic forms, basically sure, the, sure. The, the construct I had or the construct that I was dealing with was I'm not arguing with capital G O D. I'm, I'm arguing for or against, against uh, lowercase G O D. You know, right. if you take religion out of it and you take emotion out of it as a result of taking religion out of it, then does this collection of perfection exist? Now, as a result of that, I, I had to read a lot. Again, you can't really write a thesis unless you've read enough to be able to argue your point. And the book that I was reading at the time was um, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything by Christopher Hitchens. I think that was the title. It, it was fairly close to that, if not that. Sure. God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons, or How Religion Poisons Everything. <laughs> and the God that he described was the religious God. And then he had chosen to, to support his point of view, specific cases of where people had done terrible things all throughout humanity in the name of the religious God. So his argument throughout the book was, uh, I think that nothing good comes of believing in a supernatural power that you know you have to kneel in front of and pray to every night in order to to get things to happen or good things to happen to you and anything that bad happens is a result of him or her testing you right and even if you take religion out of it what remains is not good enough because other people will subvert it and will uh, make it something bad. They will take it down to the ditches with them and then use it as a way of inflicting violence on, on innocent people. Right. This lovely older lady came over. I, I was sitting at a bus bench outside of a library waiting for the bus to take me home. She came, sat down next to me. I kept reading. It was a yellow jacket. I still remember. And she commented on the color and she said, oh, that's a beautiful shade of yellow. Just from the, the the edge of the of of the book, she she couldn't see what I was reading, but just from the edge, the sides of the book, she said, "Oh, that's a wonderful shade of yellow." What are you reading? And I turned the book over, hesitantly, because I I, I don't know why, but at that moment, I thought that this is not going to end well. Mm -hmm. I, I had a bad feeling in my stomach, and I, I I don't know why I turned over the book, but I did, and she read the title. She grabbed the book and she threw it in the trash can. What? Wow. And it, it is, but she was an ardent believer. She was a devout sure. believer in whatever. I, I don't remember what she said, but something about, you know, I'm, I'm trying to save your soul and this, that, and the other. And I said, well, can you save my soul by giving me $26? Because I just <laughs> purchased it from Barnes & Noble a couple of days ago. And... Now it's soiled and I can't read it anymore. I need it for school. And I, I'm trying to rationalize her needing to pay me for destroying my property. And I, I completely ignored, you know, that aspect of it. But there was nothing that I could have said in that moment. And, and this is me thinking about it 10 years later. I don't think that there was anything that I could have said to that person 
as rational as I would have tried to be, where they would have perhaps seen it as an intellectual exercise as opposed to, oh, this is stuff that I believe. Well, no, this is a book that I'm reading, and whether I believe it or not is a completely different ex- It has nothing to do with that. I can read a book written by Bill O'Reilly, and I can read a book written by John Stewart, two individuals that seemingly hate each other, but just because I'm reading a book doesn't mean I agree with one party or the other. That's right. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting point. Well, I mean, think of it this way. You said you were working on a paper. I mean, you kind of have a lovely little anecdote to use in your paper about, um, you know, uh, at the lady at the bus stop there. I hope you, I hope you, I hope you got something out of that. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I okay. use recursion and I use all manner of mathematics and I, I played around when, with St. Anselm's argument, the, oh, yeah, the, the only a priori, a priori yeah. argument for the existence of the non-religious God. Sure. Um, I remember St. Anselm. That was, by the way, I, I, philosophy was probably the thing that um, I would have loved to major in. I took mm-hmm. a couple of philosophy courses in undergrad. So it's off, again, off the track, but uh, so love that. But you, you're right. There was probably nothing you were going to say to that woman that was going to end in her not throwing the book in the, in the trash or, or scolding you. Um, and so you kind of answered your question in a way that's similar to the way that I did. I don't know that there's anything that you can do to, you, you know what the thing is, and this is something you hit on. And the, the bigger problem is not the disagreement. It's the fact that people are not even willing to have the conversation, like you said. And sure. I don't think it has to be an intellectual conversation. I think it can be a, Tell me why you believe what you believe. I'll tell you why I believe what I believe. Let's see. Because what you end up finding when you get people on occasion, right, who are willing, as I mentioned, this this lady who worked with me actually in the SLC, very different politically. But what we found is that we did have some common ground. As far to the left as I was and as far to the right as she was, we both, for example, were ardent supporters of, you know, of uh, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And... We had that conversation. You know, I would tell her the guy's a schmuck, but yeah, he should have had a chance to be a schmuck in front of all those people. So it's a shame that we can't have more of those conversations. It's a shame that we're, like I said, we're not even coming to the table to have those conversations anymore. And that's something that unfortunately in the course of my almost 47 years, you know, I've seen, it it wasn't always that way, but it's become that way. And I don't know the way out of that way. Um, It's, it's it's sad actually that we're not having those conversations. Do you think that there's not necessarily a way out, but potentially a way back? A way out might imply that there's a you know a better situation that we can walk ourselves into, but a way back back on the path, yeah, um, might might necessarily not be something better, but it might take us back to a place where at least we're able to have these conversations. Uh, as disagreeable as or as reprehensible as the other individual on the other side of the aisle might be. Yeah. But I think that there's something to be learned. And I think it was Wild or Twain. I, I don't know who I'm attributing the quote to, but uh, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people yeah. wonder yeah. about your intelligence than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. I think it was Twain, but... I. Yeah, one of those two is a pretty good guess. I would have guessed yeah. those two as well. I think it was. I think it was Mark Twain. And yeah, that's. Um, I wish. I. I wish we were having more conversations. I wish you know, we could find those points of common interest. But yeah, so I do. I do. I do think we can get back on the right path. 
But in terms of what the catalyst for that change would be, I'm not really sure. I think we have people, and this is not just, by the way, uh, me railing against the Republican Party um, and what it's become. It's also the Democratic Party. It's also the fact that we don't have a viable third party in this country or any sort of alternative to those parties. I think that um, just just sort of in general, we've 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 lost our way. We're not even willing to talk. And what we would need is we would need people in positions of power who are setting a better example. People are impressionable. People take their cues from their leaders. They, they, they do. Even people who say, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a leader, I'm not a follower. I mean, it matters very much how people behave when they're in a position to be a role model. It matters very much that, you know, you're not a, uh, a sexist. It matters very much that you're not a racist. It matters very much that you're not fomenting rebellion. These things matter. And I feel like if, you know, if there is a way, I don't know how we get this to happen, but to have leaders on both sides of the aisle, as you said, and in other places who are setting better examples for, for, for people, um, people are impressionable. Children are impressionable. You know, they're going to, they're going to do what their, 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 their parents do and what their, their role models do. So just setting a better example for people, not bringing, look, just, just to sort of prove that, you know, I do not bring up in my classes, I try to the best of my ability, because I don't think it's on me. I try not to let my politics seep in. And when politics does come up, and I think it's within the confines or the bounds of the conversation we're having, I don't want students to know what my politics are. I mean, I'm sharing them with you, obviously, and anyone who's listening right now, but I don't think we should, I think it's irresponsible to bring our politics too much into the classroom because of the power that we have to influence other people. Just set a good example, be a good human being. Let them, let the people in that class make their own decisions. Let them not feel like any grade that they get in that class might be tied to whether they seem to sympathize with, with what you believe or, or not. Um, and I tend to see a lot of people on both sides doing that. Politics have gotten into the classroom in ways that they don't really belong. So maybe just setting, we need to set better examples. Maybe I need to set better examples. I'm thrilled when my kids say please and thank you. I take some credit for that. Sure. You know, it's just setting, it's setting good examples. And um, I think right now we have a lot of people setting bad examples. And I'm not pointing at just one person. It's a lot of people setting bad examples right now. So very naughty people. <laughs> That's perhaps the most polite way to say it. I, I will borrow it from here on out. Very naughty for people. It. Yeah, go for it. That was deliberately a polite, yeah, <laughs> polite way to say it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, on to lighter pastures. Yeah. Okay. If you could be reincarnated as any animal, what would it be and why? I could be reincarnated. I feel like this, I've heard this question before. If I could be reincarnated as any animal, um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I, maybe I, I missed my calling as an FBI uh, hostage negotiator. <laughs> if I could, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, geez, I don't, I, I'm going to go with a dolphin. I'd like to be a dolphin, I think. Any particular um, reason why a dolphin yeah, speaks Yeah, I think to it's because, well, they speak to everybody, don't they? They have that great, really, that great way of like uh, giving those, uh, those what, what do they call that? High-pitched like, um, shrieks. High-pitched shrieks, yeah. Um, 
They seem really smart. I always loved the show Flipper as a kid, and I played the game Echo the Dolphin. I'm a huge video game fan, by the way. And growing up, there was a Sega Genesis game called Echo the Dolphin. We got to maneuver, manipulate this dolphin through the water. Um, so I think you get the sort of intelligence. From what I've read, and I've read a lot about animals in my past, um, they are pretty darn smart. So you get to keep the, that sort of high level of sentience that that similar to what we have, but you also get to swim really fast and um, you get to have a cool, you know, little hole at the top of your head, I think, and you get to explore the ocean, which seems pretty cool. So uh, I'm going to go with the dolphin that'd be, that'd be, and not get seasick. Like I get seasick on a boat. Um, so now I could do, explore all these incredible places, you know, the water and not get seasick. But I'm going to go with dolphin. Cool. Well argued. If you could interview any fictional character, who would it be and why? Uh, Humbert Humbert from Lolita. Lolita's my, one of my favorite books. Of, I, have you read Lolita? I have not. So I'm going to recommend it, but with the caveat that the subject matter is um, a little bit appalling. Um, but Nabokov was one of our greatest writers in sure. my mind ever right um and so he created not i won't give the story away other than to say the quintessential unreliable narrator in humber humber he is for lack of a better term he's 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 um he's in this relationship with an underage girl he's a, he's a pedophile by all accounts he's a bad person right he's a terrible person but you don't know what you can believe or not believe in terms of his story and um he's such an interesting character um, I'd love to interview him to see if I could get the real truth about whether he did or didn't do what he was accused of doing. Maybe that again, maybe the FBI investigator coming out <laughs> again. He's such a complex, I like, I like complex characters. And I was trying to think about what kind of question you might ask me. And so one of the ones I was thinking along the lines of was, you know, if I historical figure or something, some one of those kinds of questions that you tend to hear. So I like complex characters. I like characters who offer this sort of paradox or contradiction and, and, I think he does kind of in a nice little package. Um, seems so well-spoken and smart, and yet he's been accused of these horrible things. And you don't know when he's telling the story, whether he's lying or telling the truth. So I'd like to get him in a room and have a conversation with him. It reminds, your answer reminds me of uh, an interview, I think, with Larry King. Uh, he did, I, I don't remember when he did it, but uh, he was asked how and why he asks the questions that he does of, of people. Mm -hmm. And he was going through his, his process and he, he said, you know, I never ask a question that's more than two sentences. And I, I know that, you know, it worked well for him, but I've completely blown that away out of the water with, with run on sentences and run on questions. But he uh, went on and, you know, uh, he was asked, well, if you had the chance to interview Barack Obama, would you do it? And he said, well, yes. And I did. And the interviewer then went on and said, well, why is your interview different to all the other interviews that Barack Obama has given or President Bill Clinton has given? Mm -hmm. And he mentioned, well, in, instead of talking to them about ordering drone, drone, drone strikes or uh, instead of asking uh, Bill Clinton about, well, the extramarital affairs in the, in the sure. White House, he, he said that the questions that I, I would and I did ask President Obama, for instance, is or was, 
What were you thinking at the time that you ordered that drone strike on civilians, innocent or not? That's a different, that's a, that's a whole different ballgame. But mm-hmm. instead of asking why did you order it or how did you order it, what were you thinking or what was going through your mind when you ordered that drone strike? Yeah. Uh, similarly, and he wasn't pressed on this, but he, he offered the following. He said, if I were to interview Osama bin Laden, I wouldn't ask him, why did you do 9-11 or, you know, why would you, why would you do that? Why would you fly two planes into the world trade centers? I would ask him, so you were a member of one of the richest families in the middle East, right? What made you leave? What made you want to leave this, this lap of luxury and go live in caves? Because once that person answers that question, then, you know, you move on to, well, why did you make that decision? And once you lived in the cave, why did you persist? Why did that decision continue on? Did something happen or did someone tell you something? Did you read a book? Did you watch a movie that cemented the decision to stay in that cave and now, you know, start having this hatred towards the Western ideals of democracy and, and, you know, whatever the United States was doing at the time, uh, forced or not. And eventually when you get around to talking about 9-11, you have an arc, not necessarily an explanation or a justification, but you have an understanding of what made this person do these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And something else that I thought was very interesting that he said was, no bad guy ever wakes up thinking that I'm going to do something bad today. That mm-hmm. no... I, I know I'm messing up his quote, but it was very, very eloquently put. He, he said something like, no bad guy who's not a sociopath or a psychopath ever thinks that he did something wrong. Right. In their minds, they're not the bad guy. Yes. That something happened to them. Something happened to Osama right. bin Laden, and he reacted in the way that he did. And in his head, it was justified. Right. And what was that trigger or what were the triggers that kind of led up to doing? And what, I think that that would perhaps be a more interesting question to get answered as opposed to sure. why did you do it? Well, I hate America or I hate blah, blah, blah. Well, okay. Right. Then the conversation's over. Then there's nothing else. Comes yeah. It's a boring mind. conversation. We kind of knew that one already. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. And it's funny because you mentioned Larry King and I always, I never ascribed such a deep intellectual sort of thought processes behind his, gruff <laughs> i remember watching him on cnn back in the day his questions were very you know curt to the point and but but what you're saying makes a lot of sense and what kinds of questions he would ask um that's interesting He's, he was a good interviewer you know he was i i yeah. enjoyed his voice very much i enjoyed listening to him when i was younger uh not necessarily i i didn't know enough about american politics or american involvement in countries outside of the United States to understand the nuances of the people that he was speaking with or, or what the conversation was. But I enjoyed watching the X-Files and I, I enjoyed watching him uh, purely because I, I liked his voice. It, it was, it was like my grandfather's, but with more walnuts. I don't know if that. Well, makes sense. yes, it's, it's the kind of voice you only get by smoking a lot. We're doing something to your vocal cords. He, he had Same. a very, I, I would, walnuts. No, I got the, I got the walnuts. I, I, I get it. It, it sounds there, there's like something. there's walnuts. Instead of vocal cords, he just had has walnuts that crack. walnuts, yeah. And, and, very, and, very, very gruff sounding. Very distinctive sounding mm-hmm. voice. 
though. Yeah. Um, kind of become a caricature at this point, but you know, he did it first, you know, that was that he was like one or maybe one of the first people to do that kind of interview. He was doing that kind of interview, like what, like, you know, 30 plus years ago, sure, a long time ago. So yeah, I agree. I like your style better than Larry King. <laughs> I like I your walnut-less voice better than, than Larry King's. I, I, I wish for... You have a good voice for podcasts. Well, thank you. But I, I, yeah. if I could trade it without having to go through years of smoking, if I could trade my voice for perhaps just maybe even, not, not you know 24 hours a day, but just when I'm interviewing people or recording myself doing or saying sure. something, I, I wish that I had... I have it when I'm sick, which is annoying because I wish I could have that, you know, the entire time. And there's an undercurrent of not to get gross phlegm from, yeah, sure. uh, Tony Hopkins has it. Ian McKellen has it. So the, the, the great actors, uh, you know, I had to read a lot of Shakespeare when I was growing up in India and frequently we would watch the plays after we had, finish reading the play, uh, play the, for school. And that was one of those, you know, end of year bonuses. We would all get shepherded into the, the little library or excuse of a library that we had. And then they would put on some sort of... What's your favorite? Uh, I want to ask, because I, I, I'm a big Shakespeare fan as well. So what's your favorite film adaptation? And who's your favorite uh, actor in a Shakespearean movie? This is going to sound terrible. But Patrick Stewart's Macbeth. Oh, really? Interesting. I, I, it, it was not... Oftentimes, the adaptations get very stuffy. Sure. Um, and Patrick Stewart's Macbeth, th- there was enough Shakespeare... I mean, all, all, he, he read all the lines as they were written, but... Mm-hmm. There, there was enough of a distance from theater to where it didn't come across as, oh, this was a live theater showing and they just put a camera in front of it. It came across as, oh, this is a movie, except the lines are from Macbeth. Right. So yeah. I know that that's not a purist answer. Um, no, I don't care about Peter Sanchez. I mean, those, <laughs> who, it, you know, no one wants to watch the, the, I like Laurence Olivier as much as the next guy, but you know, my, my favorite is, is Mel, Mel Gibson as Hamlet, uh-huh. which I don't know that that many people are giving your answer or my answer. <laughs> We're probably getting thrown out of the Shakespeare club for those answers. Right. Sure. Um, but for, for a very similar reason to what you say, it's a movie and it doesn't have to be stuffy and, and, um, that's actually one of my favorite adaptations um, of, you know. I have another one, and this is far more recent, I think. The Merchant of Venice, Al Pacino. Oh, yes. Played yeah, that Shylock. was not that long that ago. That was yeah. amazing. It was Shylock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I really, really, really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And he has that same phlegmy undercurrent. Uh, it, it gets very deep, but he has two resonant frequencies. And that's something that I get when I have, when I'm sick. Sick, yeah. And... I wish I could have two resonant frequencies, but I can't yeah. unless I'm yeah. sick, which is terrible. That's or I start sm- smoking, but then I, I think I would. No, don't smoke. Don't smoke. <laughs> we want to keep, keep you around for a little bit. Um, but I, I, I like that also. I'm a huge music fan. So people who tend that tend to have that kind of gravelly voice that usually comes with, you know, some sort of nicotine addiction. Sure. You know, um, like a 
Leonard Cohen or uh, like Johnny Cash. I don't know if he was a smoker, but what a distinctive voice he had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, a lot of walnuts. All right, Mr. Mark, the last question. If you had to give a title to this podcast and or this episode, what would you choose? Uh, probably proceed with caution would be. <laughs> no, I, I, don't I think, think it may have offended almost everyone. I don't know. Well, in the, maybe. In the course I, I, of, well, this is just for me. It's not the title for your podcast, but maybe sure. for this episode of the podcast. Um, would be proceed with caution but i think people who know me realize that at some point in an hour and 15 minutes or so i'm going to offend them um that's that's almost just sort of a, a you know an expectation or a given so was the question for the episode or for the entire podcast well, both. They're, they're two separate questions so title your your episode I, and then title like, the podcast i like the title you already have I think it was, you know, and I know that's sort of a, a BS answer, a cop-out answer, but it was like, um, you know, something about the name of the podcast, right? Like it's, I need a title a, podcast, need a title, but I think that's great. Cause I think what you're kind of doing with these conversations is there is this sense of tabula rasa that you don't want people coming in and preparing. There is this blank slate. You don't know where the conversation is going to go. Um, I actually like that as a reflection of the, you know, the, the way you conduct the interviews and you need a name, you need a title. Um, you can't really expect anything in particular when that's the title of the podcast. Now, I don't know if that's going to shoot you up the, uh, the, the podcast hit charts or whatever, the, whatever they're <laughs> called, you know, you may, for that reason alone, you may want to change the name, but in terms of what you're actually doing, I think it's a pretty good reflection of that. So I don't know that I would change it. I was intrigued because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what kind of questions you would ask. So it was, you know, not really trepidation, but with really not a lot of expectations. I just sort of sat down and listened and kind of liked the way that it, it twisted and wound around. And it seemed very um, in the moment and or organic. So like the fact that your numbers make no sense of the podcast as well. I enjoy that. Um, I, yeah. No, well, I, I don't some know. of them have meaning. So Nat, the, the very first one was at a hundred and that was an homage to, I, I enjoy movies as well. Have you seen Goodwill Hunting? Of course. Yeah. So at the beginning when Matt Damon is trying to go out or ask Minnie Driver out on a date, he says, would you like to go out and have a bunch of caramels or caramels? I forget how he says it. Mm -hmm. And she says, well, why would you want to eat caramels? Why not, you know, eat, have a cup of coffee or do something normal? And he said, well, when you think about it, coffee is just as arbitrary as anything else. So we could just as well go out and eat some carrots. That's right. And caramels are sweet. So why the hell not? Or, or some like version who made, of that. Who made that decision? Sure. Yeah. Who made so that I decision? don't know no, why I... numbering episodes needed to start at one. So I started at 100, having Matt Damon saying those lines in my mind. Yeah. And then I, I think I gave it a thought of, ping-ponging from 100 to 1, then back to 99, and then back to 2. Yeah, I like that. And I, I realized that that would have a pattern to it, and I didn't... Right, so you didn't want a pattern. You I didn't no want it pattern. structured, and right. I could have gone with a random number generator, but then there's a pattern to that as well. It's not organic. Right. I'm assigning values to it. That's right. I and like that. uh, with this way of doing things, if there's a number that, you know, uh, for Helena, it, it, it's something that I already released the conversation about, but... 
I had asked her and I had asked. I can't spell the number 18, by the way. <laughs> There's that a little was very, there. very impressive. After I That's thought incredible. about it and I, I realized, you know, that that is pretty dang impressive. Her young son is a better speller than I am. So we have a hope for the future. Yeah, we do. So I don't know what your number is going to be, but I have to think back to, usually I come up with something semi-clever when I listen to the episode again. And that gives me ideas of, you know, what questions I should have asked, but didn't. Uh, and I, I pretend to make note of them so that I have them for the future, but I don't. And uh, yeah. it, it's so far people have said that, you know, your lack of preparation seems to be oddly self-serving and that it's, it's good. not a lack of preparation. I, I think you have to be, it's go back, go back to that story with me, with my notes. I think, you know, and, and I know enough about you to know about your teaching style. You've, you've spoken about it. I've actually attended, you know, we've had some, some small interactions on sure. campus. Um, I know enough about your teaching style to know that there is a tremendous amount of thought and preparation that goes into making it seem seamless and making it seem like it's just happening. Um, it's, it's not just happening. So I know that that's not true. Um, and if other people don't see that, well, you know, mission accomplished. Oh, with them. Right. And by the way, so I'm thinking like, you're going to do these hundred episodes, let's say the first hundred and they're going to be randomly numbered. I'm going to confuse the hell out of someone when they look at it holistically. That's what I'm thinking. Right. And that's going to be great. Actually, they're going to try to follow some kind of order and it's going to completely screw with their heads when they, when they do. I thought about it. I think last Friday when I was releasing uh, Kim's episode. And I thought that, you know, anyone who's starting now right. is not necessarily going to know where to start. So I, I went back and I renamed Nat's episode, first episode, start here, or listen to this one first, or something along those lines to say, start here. And after that, you can kind of pick and choose your own adventure. And that was an homage right. to those books that I read sure. as a kid, you know, choose yeah. your own adventure. Yeah. And partly I was also inspired by a book that I started reading recently called Humble Pie. Um, when math in the real world goes really wrong or some, something along those mm. lines. It's written by Matt Parker, hilarious book. And the book is numbered backwards. So it starts at, you know, page 310 or whatever number it is. And then it goes 309, 308. Sure. And in the introduction, or in the forward, somewhere in the beginning of the book, he says, the pages are numbered backwards on purpose. Please don't return this book to the bookstore. It's not a mistake. <laughs> and that made me smile. Another book that I'm reading is Safe Travels, I think, by Michael Crichton. Something Travels, I forget. Uh, he, Michael Crichton is my all-time favorite of, of anyone that I have ever, ever read or watched outside of maybe Tony Hopkins, he is the epitome. And I didn't agree with most of what he thought about climate change. Uh, I started reading Jurassic Park when I was in third grade. So that had such a huge impression on me. And I, I watched the movie two years later when it came out. So I, I grew up with Crichton and sure. I wanted and I still do to write like him to where I try to mimic the stuff that he did and, and things that stuck out to me. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I picked up this book and I, I read the very first line and I said, 
this is Crichton. There's no one else that could have written this book except for him. And the first line was a sign of like great, great art. It's amazing. You see one brushstroke. Yep. Yeah. Wes Anderson. You can see, okay. Oh, 90 degree angle to the camera. That, that has to be an Anderson movie. No one else does that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But the line that the book starts with or opens with is it is really, it is really hard to saw off a person's head. Hmm. And I looked at it, I smiled, not because, you know, I, I think that that's hilarious or that's endearing. There's a bone in there, right? That's kind yes. of, is that, is that, yeah, okay. It's your neck, you know, it's your, uh, yeah. So he, sure. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with Crichton's Fine. past. He was a, a, a medical doctor. He went to Harvard yeah. Medical School and I, I think he finished residency and then he became a fiction writer where he continued, he, he abandoned medicine and continued writing fiction. And that's something a doctor would say. Yes. But he starts the book with, uh, the book is about his travels to different parts of the world, and he starts off with the summer that he spends in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, going through uh, anatomy dissections for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that's his introduction, or that's his hook. And how, how do you put down a book after you read that sentence? I, I Well, you don't, I don't probably, but there are a lot of people who probably do for that. Maybe they do, but I, I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, he's interesting. He's an interesting guy. Real, real kind of polymath. I did. I do know a little bit about him in the medical background. And I think he, I, I feel like he also, didn't he direct movies? Did he, did he do something with the actual, I know he didn't direct Jurassic Park and things like that, but I feel like he had a bigger might role have than just writing of... screenplays. He might have had a part either in, 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 there's three things that come to mind, Terminal Man, Andromeda Strain, and Westworld. Mm-hmm. The original Westworld, not the more recent With one. With Yul Brenner. Yes. Yeah. Which was awesome. Uh, so he yeah, might have had a, a part to play directing any of those things. Um, I feel like he did. I feel like you're right. That's a really good recall, good memory there. I feel like he did. It's pretty impressive, actually. He was fantastic. And I was really sad when he died. And it, it again, the, the master's stroke, I think it was the pirate latitudes. That was one of the books that was posthumously released by his wife. And I think it was Preston child or Lincoln child. One of the two child authors that finished the manuscript. So she found Sherry found uh, this, you know, half complete or semi cooked manuscript on on his computer. And then it was given to someone who, you know, the publisher thought that they were worthy enough to, to finish the book out. And I remember talking to my girlfriend at the time. I, I said, Julie, I can, I can tell you with certainty that this is the last sentence that Crichton wrote. And from here on out, changed. things yeah. just, it, yeah. they, they, they so drastically fall off the cliff that it's not even funny. It, it, it's yeah. so bad. That, you know, the story flows, but you, you can immediately tell that the genius is no longer there. Right. Uh, yeah. of, of holding that tension taut. After that, it's just a floopy drum. But I, I wanted to try to do something as jarring, uh, not my choice, but I thought that if I didn't go in with any preparation, then the questions would seem jagged and disorganized enough to where I might be able to you know, lose people's attention along the way, but then capture them with, it's really hard to cut off someone's head or saw someone's head. That's great. Yeah. Um, so I guess a little bit of preparation went into not preparing at all. 
That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's <laughs> sort of contrived chaos, right? It, it it works. It works really well, though. And um, I think the people you've had on have been really interesting. I've really been enjoying. I didn't know what to expect, thinking, hey, these are people I work with. And, you know, what stories are they going to tell that I haven't already heard? And a couple of the people you've interviewed, I don't want to give anything away. People should listen to the, to the episodes. But I know a couple of them incredibly well mm-hmm. and um, still learn some things about them, including a person I have sat next to for the past three years, literally <laughs> at work. So um, kudos to you for that. I mean, that's you've, you've pulled some things out of them that, you know, I didn't know. I, don't, I didn't know. So yeah, good. Well, good thank work. you for, thank you. Thank you for spending your Saturday evening with me. And I yes, hope thank you. that after I get to 50, I feel like I'm I'm running out my welcome with emails that I'm sending out. So I, I'm hoping I can get a hundred unique individuals. Uh, but if I don't, then after 50, I think I might start doing something of a repeat. So it would be wonderful to have you back on again. I would, I would and love maybe to. Maybe we can know. delve deeper into one of the detours that I, I, I thought that it, it, it might be too much for the first conversation. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the questions and the time together. So thank you for that. Thank you. Enjoy your evening. Right. You as well. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Here's a sneak peek from next week. My closest friends growing up, we went to Montessori school and then we all went to St. Joan of Arc together. Their fathers were physicians at the hospital. So in my mind... I thought everyone's dad was a priest first, and then you went to work at the hospital. So I didn't think anything, and I would meet these other kids, and then they would say what their dad did. I'm like, oh, so they weren't a priest first. Until next time, for another 90 times, take care.